0: their social security numbers revealed by Experian last year, there was a Facebook data leak that arguably enabled some really malicious political advertising, and every day we're just hearing more and more about how our privacy, our digital identities are basically under siege. So today at Crypto Nomads, we're actually gonna do something a little bit different. We're gonna bring on a guest, Adi Kamdar, who is an expert who's thought a lot about digital identity. This
1: is an exciting opportunity for a couple of reasons. I think we find ourselves at a crossroads where, on the one hand, there's never been more of a honeypot of data for you know hackers to potentially steal, to potentially violate people's privacy. At the same time, we've never had more of an opportunity to create and control and spread our own identity. Since the the dawn of the internet, most of our identities have lived in centralized databases, siloed by individual companies, who can either, you know, take that data and use it themselves, potentially have it used by the government, or even, you know, get hacked. Um, but potentially, with the advent of blockchain, we have the opportunity to let users control their own data and use it as they wish on the web, which is potentially revolutionary for for how we construct and use our own identities. So, I think this is a really important time in, in history, and I think Adi, um, we're really looking forward to hearing your perspectives from past revolutions um, and how that's going to map onto this one.
0: Right, and in keeping with Crypto Nomad's theme, which is really to delve into the practical applications, sort of the real-world impacts of these technologies, we are going to talk a little bit about blockchain technology, but actually, for the most part, we're going to take a step back and talk about these ideas a little bit more in the abstract. Without further ado, super excited to have Adi Kamdar on the podcast today. Adi is formerly an activist at the Electronic Frontiers Foundation. He's currently a fellow at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. He's also a recent Harvard Law School graduate. Welcome to Crypto Nomads, Adi. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Excellent. First off, we'd love to just hear a little bit about what got you interested in privacy and the free culture movement in general. What were some of the formative moments for you that got you excited about these topics?
2: Sure. I was always interested in technology, and I was never a very technical person myself. I'm still not a very technical person myself, but I was always interested in how technology kind of affected how we interacted with each other, how we communicated with each other. And, you know, I kept up to date with the newest technologies to the chagrin of my parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I first got interested in this sort of stuff, actually, n- not from a privacy perspective, from a copyright perspective. It's a very different area of the law, but there's a lot of uh, kind of overlap It was in high school when a buddy of mine sort of got me interested in how copyright law is this area of the law that is really uh, has been formed by these entrenched interests and is really outdated, doesn't make sense in the modern era of the internet where sharing is very easy and very costless and that really got me first interested in this idea that oh wait the law is this kind of slow-moving beast for, for better or for worse and Exists in this time period that is pretty different from the time period that we're in right now when it comes to technology, there's a huge gap between where the law and policy is and where uh, Technology is today and it's that area in between that gap that got me super excited to really learn about these issues you know, how should the law and policy transform in eras of new technology. How should tra- how should technology take into account these gaps? And you know, after getting more involved with, uh, as you mentioned, the free culture movement, which was a lot about open software, open technology.
0: And Adi, what is the free culture movement? Just because it sounds a little bit like something from the sixties, but I think it's actually, in fact, quite different.
2: <laughs> yeah, t- yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, the free culture movement, you know, it's been around for a little while and it's had various forms, but for the most part, it was an idea created by a law professor, Larry Lessig, who was basically also interested in this idea that copyright law is very old and technologies are very new and the ability to share is very new. So there's no real reason why we should apply these old laws that basically, you know, As soon as you create something, you get a copyright for 70 years plus your life, right? That's an insane amount of time. Hmm. That does not comport with the fact that I can send you whatever file I want instantly online and we can share things. We can create things like, I don't know, Napster, for example, which instantly became the largest library of human created knowledge ever overnight, basically, (laughs) And yet, the law is still this old beast. So, the free culture movement was this movement that pushed for change in the law and policy and technology to encourage sharing, to encourage this uh, culture of collaboration. Things like open source software where people could, you know, work on the same tools, work on the same pieces of culture and share with each other in a way that really could not be done beforehand. And then also push for legal change or regime change to allow for this and not make such sharing illegal. The long story short is after that, I got super involved with this, got involved with law and technology in general. Ended up working at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, which is working on a lot of not only the copyright issues that I cared about, but also a lot of privacy and surveillance issues. It's a digital civil liberties group based in San Francisco. That got me much more interested in privacy law because I was you know, much more exposed to the ability of governments and companies to manipulate and collect and use people's data and the serious policy policy implications that come from
0: that. And can you share a little bit about what you've been doing at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry and one of the recent victories that I think I, I read about recently in the news?
2: Oh, so so the so the Internet Law and Policy Foundry is actually just a group of people who are interested in law and technology. Basically, it's a group of they're they're mostly well, no, I guess they're not mostly lawyers. There there are a lot of lawyers, a lot of law students, a lot of um, people in the policy world, a lot of technologists. That's the sort of I don't know, it's a sort of community that that supports each other that I've been involved with for a little bit. I'm actually. Now that I'm done with law school, thank goodness, uh, I'll be doing a fellowship at a place called the Knight First Amendment Institute this fall, which is a place at Columbia. It's an organization based at Columbia that works on free speech issues and free press issues. They, I think this is maybe what you're talking about, but they just had a big victory around they, they have a case where they're suing Donald Trump around the idea that he cannot block people on Twitter or his, his blocking people on hmm. Twitter is a First Amendment violation. Yeah. It's kind of a new novel approach to uh, the First Amendment and how it applies to social media, but it's a really interesting case. Uh, the judge ruled that Trump blocking people on Twitter um, because of their viewpoint was impermissible discrimination, basically, and it violates the First Amendment. So we'll see how that case shakes out. But those are the sorts of issues that I'm, I'm interested in right now. Wow. That's exciting. And I, th- I
1: think that's something, Adi, um, you know, maybe we'll talk a bit more about this in a bit. But have you thought about how decentralized versions, for example, Twitter decentralized versions of those identities might allow people to prevent that from happening without, you know, without necessarily needing uh, some intervention saying the central party has to has to force Trump, or, or actually, l- let me ask it this way: is is the ruling going to force Twitter to take action against Trump, or, or how are they going to enforce that ruling?
2: Yeah, so that that gets into the legal weeds a little bit. The judge ruled that Trump blocking people on Twitter is unconstitutional, however, did not issue an injunction against Trump, basically saying that separation of powers says that I can't force the president to do X, Y, or Z. But as the judge, the purpose of the judiciary is to say what the law is. And the law is that Trump cannot do this. So we expect Trump to unblock these people. (laughs)
0: That's so interesting. It's a remedy without any teeth,
2: really. We'll we'll see how that actually works out. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see what both sides do in response to that. This doesn't really affect Twitter. The idea is that yeah. Trump's Twitter account is a sort of state action right there, a state actor right there. And um therefore Trump is in full power of blocking and unblocking people. Twitter can still do whatever it wants. Interesting. As the sort of intermediary that's in charge of this.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Cool. Should we dive into some privacy stuff? Right on.
1: Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Let's go to privacy. So Adi, at at a high level, um, you mentioned you came into this uh, whole space thinking more about sort of free speech, First Amendment, but then you sort of transitioned to privacy with EFF. How do you think about privacy at a high level? And why do you think that people feel so passionately? Um, about this topic. It seems to be extremely heated in the news and conversations you have with friends. Um, what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah,
2: it's, I mean, it's it's a hot topic. It's, it's really kind of interesting to see how people's approaches to privacy has evolved over time. You know, so when I started at EFF, I was working on a lot of consumer privacy issues, things around how Facebook deals with people's data. But there was a lot of sort of privacy nihilism around people didn't really care about their privacy, didn't really think it was a big deal. People trusted intermediaries. I think a big shift happened in 2013 after the Snowden revelations. Mm. I do want to sort of separate government surveillance from corporate surveillance. I think they're very related and they're both fraught, but they do have their own sort of different protections and approaches. And maybe we could tease those out a little later. But what the Snowden revelations did, especially the sort of the information that came out that the NSA and that the government was piggybacking off of existing infrastructure, off of existing companies to collect everybody's information, I think revealed to people something that they maybe already knew, but really kind of solidified that, oh, this sort of collection and surveillance is constantly happening. And it's happening at a scale that was really kind of shocking, really, really kind of impressive.
0: Yeah. But did we see any real behavior changes, would you say, after that initial sort of 2013 watershed moment?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I think... So the the way I, I consider... Think about privacy and i talk about privacy there's kind of a an age-old notion starting from 110 115 years ago that privacy is the sort of right to be left alone it, it's actually interesting reading about the history of privacy in that privacy wasn't really a thing <laughs> for a really long time the idea of privacy as an as actionable tort in the law did not really come about until about 100 years ago and it was just theorized hmm. oh, wow. by these two you know, lawyers, uh, these two law professors. Was it Brandeis or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Brandeis and, and Warren. What has happened is we're now living in an era where people love sharing, right? People love this idea that you can... Receive value for the data that you share, Uh, whether it's sharing photos with your friends or even just like to some extent getting getting better ads, right? Like people find (laughs) value in the ability to share information, and what people care about more and what privacy has transformed into is the right to control this information and the right to know about what this information is and how it's being used. And I think what what ended up happening after these Snowden leaks is people realized this sort. of lack of control, that they don't have as much of a grasp on the information that they share as they feel felt like they should. What you saw afterward was, at least in the work that EFF did, a lot of companies were cracking down on privacy afterward, implementing things like uh, end-to-end encryption or securing these sort of like weak links throughout the sort of communication change. They're securing their servers a lot more. They were collecting less information or trying to anonymize more information. They were pushing for changes in the law where they didn't have to share as much information with the government or where they uh, retained information and the government couldn't collect the information in the first place. You also saw the sort of advent and the proliferation of tools like uh, Signal or, you know, WhatsApp using end-to-end encryption or iMessage using end-to-end encryption. That became the default And, you know, this is a thing that maybe most users didn't really bother caring about or or knew about. But what ended up happening in the background was people ended up switching to systems or the systems themselves ended up changing in such a way to make surveillance and the collection of data a little harder or a little more expensive for. Uh, by expensive, I mean expensive computationally for government entities like the NSA to to do. The other thing is it really affected how activist groups and communities of color, marginalized communities that are often surveilled, how they participated in political systems, how they communicated with each other, the sort of call for the use of encrypted systems or private systems really increased and the sort of awareness of local surveillance ways that the police and that the government were using new technologies to surveil these traditionally marginalized groups uh, really kind of skyrocketed. Um, So yeah, I think there was a fair bit of change. That's great. Wow.
1: I was gonna, you know, ask Audie. You mentioned that this sort of right to privacy, or you know, if there is indeed a right to privacy, is, is relatively recent—the in the last hundred years or so. Maybe you could just walk us through what was the sort of intellectual underpinning of that, the argument for why why we do have a right to privacy, and do you think that still upholds today?
2: Yeah, and and you know, I I want to make clear that it's this kind of n- uh, notion of like personal privacy that has really developed over the last 100 years. But the, the idea that the government has limits on what they can collect, that's been around since the founding, really. And that was kind of the basis of many of the provisions in the Bill of Rights, most notably the Fourth Amendment, which prevents the government from searching or seizing your homes, your papers, your information without a warrant, without a neutral magistrate saying, okay, yes, you have probable cause. The idea behind that was, you know, the British before the revolution had these things called general warrants, where they would basically just go and, you know, raid whatever houses they want, collect whatever information they want without asking, without any judicial oversight. And this was something that the founders pushed back against. And the idea behind that it's very similar to the idea why people care about surveillance or privacy issues today is because people felt like they had this inherent right to be free from government interference or oversight into their personal lives, into their daily transactions, into you know their ability to express themselves, to associate with each other. This idea kind of developed over time and really kind of expanded over the last hundred years especially over the last 50 years with the kind of involvement of the First Amendment which protects you know the freedom of speech the freedom of press but also inherent in the freedom of in the freedom of press was the idea of the freedom of association and mm. this was really kind of solidified by the Supreme Court in a case called NAACP versus Alabama, where the government was basically trying to collect the membership roles of the NAACP. They claimed they needed the membership roles for whatever purpose, whatever reason, but uh, the Supreme Court basically said, no, you can't collect this information because it will chill association. It will chill uh, the ability of these groups, especially these marginalized groups, especially these communities of color, to associate with each other and to form organizations, political organizations. People will be chilled, basically, from speaking to each other and from communicating with each other, and the whole sort of basis of the freedom of speech is to protect political expression is to protect this sort of ability to find people who are similar to you and form political groups, form political parties. If you have the government staring down your back or um, collecting information about who's talking to who and who's associating with who, that prevents people from effectively associating with each other. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. And that's really great Adi, because I think one of the topics I was going to bring up is this extremely tired quote, nothing to hide argument that I'm sure you've heard quite a bit as somebody in the privacy space, and that I think any advocate of privacy is going to hear from one of their relatives or friends, which is effectively, hey, if I have nothing to hide, if I'm dotting my I's and crossing my T's, paying my taxes, obeying all the laws, what's the problem with, you know, government surveillance? It doesn't actually, I I have nothing to hide, and therefore I'm willing to, to expose that. I think what you're very clearly highlighting is that, you know, certain groups very clearly are being marginalized, or being discriminated against, and that kind of wholesale collection of data can really harm them. So do you still hear the nothing to hide argument from people? And if so, do you kind of have a a pithy response or a more measured response like how, how do you deal with that <laughs> very common refrain that you hear from people that aren't as educated about these issues
2: yeah I mean like this is this is sort of uh, when you are in the privacy advocacy space this is sort of 101 in what you have to learn to respond to because yeah it, it does come up time and again and I think it you know it's a, it's a very flawed argument but it's not it's not unjustified I would say I think it th- there's a there's a very at least on a gut level it seems right that if I'm a good citizen and I have I'm not doing anything bad why should I really care? And I think it, it, you know there's there's a few approaches to why this is important. One of them is when you think about the bill of rights When you think about protections in the law, these sorts of protections that the law fosters throughout the law, not just these inherent rights like the freedom of speech or the freedom from uh, searches and seizures, those laws, and this is kind of a common refrain within the uh, civil liberties community, those laws weren't created to protect majorities. They weren't created to protect protect people who are comfortable in their day-to-day life. Purpose of free speech If everybody agrees with whatever you're saying, you don't need the First Amendment, right? Like, there's no one who's going to go after you when it comes to trying to censor your speech or trying to stop you from saying what you're saying. What these laws are there for is to protect minorities, to protect the sort of marginalized groups, to protect the people who are saying things or doing things that need protection. One thing to think about is you may have nothing to hide, or you may think you have nothing to hide, but there are people who do have something to hide. These are people who are trying to, for example, journalists have something to hide often, journalists who use anonymous sources. And over the last 10, 12 years, we've seen a huge uptick in the government trying to use uh, mechanisms, both legal and extra legal, to Unveil journalistic sources, wow. or to subpoena journalists, or to really clamp down on the journalist's ability to use anonymous sources, which is you know a fundamental right, a fundamental protected right. Lawyers have stuff to hide. There's a thing called the attorney tr- attorney-client privilege that protects. You know, it's a, it's a fundamental privilege that protects the ability. For clients to be open with their lawyers and for lawyers to be able to offer their clients the best services and the, and the fullest extent of their services, think about criminal defense lawyers or, you know, a common sort of um, anecdote is the lawyers who protect um, or who represent people in Guantanamo Bay who have a lot of um, interesting anecdotes about their being surveilled or, you know, they're hearing a click on the phone when they're trying to talk to their clients, or you know, when they're trying to talk to their clients' relatives overseas, their knowledge that they're probably being surveilled, and how that chills their ability to provide services. Think about activists who have a long history of being surveilled by the government. Most recently, Uh, Activists in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, activists in uh, Occupy Wall Street who have uh, stories and anecdotes of, you know, the FBI showing up at their door, the FBI or local police using things like various sort of surveillance technologies to uh, monitor cell phone use at protests or to monitor Facebook use, public posts on social media to figure out who's organizing where or who's associated with whom. And using these technologies to basically create these maps of networks so they can better surveil people. Um, These are people who have something to hide, um, who have the need, the really kind of important need, to protect themselves from being surveilled by governments or by other actors in order to properly associate with each other, to properly carry out their services. Now, these are all, you know, uh, even people who have things against lawyers or activists or journalists, you know, think about businesses with trade secrets. Everybody has these sort of important things that they don't want to keep or they don't want other people to know. So that's basically what I would say to people who, who don't have anything to, or whose claim not to have anything to hide. The other sort right. of tack is, you do have stuff to hide, right? Like you... Give me your phone and let me look through all the pictures. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> let me look through all the pictures. You know, <laughs> give me your password. Let me look through your emails. There's a great book called, "The I forget who it's by, but it's called Three Felonies a Day that basically highlights how we're all committing crimes all the time. There's so many <laughs> Laws on the books, crimes a book on, on the books. There's a great Twitter account. I believe it's called Crime A Day or maybe Felony A Day that tweets out a felony or, or a crime, a federal crime every day. Do you have a favorite felony, Adi? Do I have a favorite felony? Uh, <laughs> that's a tough question. I don't have any off the top of my head. So one of my favorites, I guess, and one of the ones that I've worked on reforming, especially when I was at EFF, was the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which basically says... If you violate a terms of service, if you violate that pages-long thing that you do not read and that you click I accept for whenever you log into a website or go on a different website, you are committing a felony.
0: (laughs) Wow, good thing I always read those documents. Yeah, good thing we
2: always read those. (laughs) Yeah, Um, totally. so, (laughs) So, you know, people do have things to hide whether they know it or not. We don't want to necessarily leave the trust in the government or um, in these corporations to determine what is worth hiding and what is worth uh, what isn't worth hiding. Um, governments are imperfect, and they have a long history of not being able to distinguish between negative and positive social disruption, right? Like just think about the whole 1960s and 70s and the FBI going after MLK. Uh, the civil rights movement, MLK, the Black Panther Party, um, yeah. and so on. That's a long winded uh, response. If, if I had to do an elevator pitch, one thing that really struck with me and something that I've, I've, I've used on others and, and has seemed to work is if you have nothing to hide, how can I trust you? (laughs) Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we all have things that, are very important to us, information that's important to us, secrets that we have, we have intimate relationships with each other, we have things that we care about and we care to share with other people that we don't want widely known. So there's an idea that if you don't care about your privacy, if you don't care about keeping your information safe, the stuff that you know is safe, how am I ever going to trust you with my secrets? How am I ever going to have a sort of intimate relationship with with you. Because, you know, Mm -hmm. what is fundamental ultimately is the fact that we're able to connect with each other on an intimate level. And if I don't trust you as my friend to keep the things that I'm telling you secret, or to be able to confide in you, or to be able to get advice from you, because you don't care about your privacy, because you claim you have nothing to hide, how could I ever trust you?
0: Or to take it a step further, it's like, even if you don't want to have an intimate relationship with me, if you have nothing to hide, then you're probably not that interesting. <laughs> Why should I be talking to you at all?
2: Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you don't want people to get too defensive, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's definitely true. Um, that would be like the sardonic. Yeah. Right, right. And Time I think you, know, you, can, yeah. you can convince people with enough history about uh, government abuse, and you can convince people with enough examples of sort of corporate abuse but um, what really hits home to a lot of people is the sort of personal, intimate importance of privacy that really what it's about is to foster relationships between people, intimate relationships with, between people. And if you want to exist in a world where those intimate relationships can flourish so that people individually can flourish, can try new things out, can experiment, can, can uh, uh, band together politically, can do things that they care about, then you need to care about privacy. You need to understand that, yeah, I I should have things to hide.
1: <laughs> totally. Audi, you mentioned one thing that I found really fascinating, which is that the right to privacy and a lot of these other fundamental rights are primarily laid out for minorities. Um, if if you're in the position of power, obviously this doesn't, you know, it's not really a challenge that you face. I'm curious if you've seen other societies, perhaps non Western, perhaps even you know, hunter-gatherer um, or from a different time or a different era, where privacy wasn't necessary because the conception of the self was vastly different. The conception of the self was more, um, you know, community oriented. Um, I'm curious if you've seen those examples and if, if you think the conception of self is, is ultimately what, what drives whether or not we need
2: that privacy. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have, a, <laughs> a lot of my focus has just been on the, on the U S. So I, I don't have any great examples of this. I mean, I, I, I imagine in sort of smaller communities, the idea of privacy is sort of less less critical, especially when uh, less data is is being shared with uh, uh, among people, uh, or there's just like less data to be had in the first place. I think a lot of it does, yeah. A, a lot of my sort of approach to to privacy is predicated on this idea, this kind of strong sense of self, how individuals have to have the sort of breathing space and the room to, to be themselves. If you look at sort of uh, the relationship between the U.S. and Europe, though, uh, Europeans have a lot more interest in privacy than, than um, people in the U.S. do. Uh, you know, for various historical reasons, uh, the idea of government abuse, like massive... Deadly government abuse of large-scale surveillance systems is much more apparent to folks in Europe. It's much more recent to people in Europe, not only Nazi Germany, but sort of Cold War Europe. That has really informed a lot of the policies in Europe. Uh, Here in the U.S., we sort of have a, a stronger balance between... Privacy and free speech and there's actually a lot of tension between privacy and free speech in that, you know people should have the ability to uh, At least we feel in the US should have the ability to you know report on people's private activities if they're newsworthy uh, Well in Europe, they sort of crack down on that a lot more um, In Europe they have this thing called the right to be forgotten, you know Which is the ability for individuals to talk to intermediaries like Google and say hey this information that you're listening to when someone Googles my name is like pretty old and outdated. So why don't you just get rid of it? While in the US, that idea is sort of anathema to free speech where um, we have this idea that, you know, you should be able to report on things in the past. You should be able to maintain these sorts of histories. You should be able to talk about things that are important now or were important in the past. So there are definite tensions in the privacy world, and it's interesting to see as the world becomes you know, more and more connected how laws in different areas affect other areas of the world. We see this mo- most recently, just last week, the large European privacy regulation called the GDPR just went into effect.
0: Unfortunately, an acronym that reminds me of uh, East Germany. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, perhaps. How'd they pick that? Yeah, Yeah,
2: totally. Funny enough. And it'll be interesting to see how how, uh, companies and and individuals in Europe sort of adapt to those privacy changes.
0: Well, yeah, I I really like Max's question both looking geographically but also over the course of time because, Adi, you've just revealed several examples of just how subjective this can be, right? And it's like every society is going to set its own rules for when it's okay to reveal private information. I mean, an example I think of is like patient-doctor privacy in the field of mental health. If somebody confesses to a desire to do self-harm or something, that there's some instances I think where it's legally required that they disclose that, that was you know told in confidence. So it just kind of like brings you back to the fact that this is all relative. You could go so far as to claim that there isn't necessarily an innate right to privacy, it's just what each society decides to put in place. Historically, thinking about just how the family structures in the western world, even just looking at the US, have changed. Maybe in the early 20th century, you'd be living with your grandparents and like a much larger set of family members and there was pro- and maybe you'd be sharing I think of my dad, he shared a room with like eight siblings, right? So it's like right. your your sort of ability to have a personal space and personal privacy was a lot more limited. So it makes sense that now, as people are living, I would say, more isolated lives, they have a greater degree to which they can keep stuff to themselves and then therefore they have more to protect or they feel like they have more to protect.
1: Actually, this is a point, you know, Eli and Adi, that's been on my mind a lot because I I have sort of um, very different visceral reactions. On the one hand, in the society that we have today, like everything you're saying, Adi, I I totally agree with, you know, and the ability to protect minorities' voices, the ability to freely experiment. I think privacy is extremely important. But yet, to your point, Eli, I do think about how arbitrary, you know, any societal configuration is. And I think back to, you know, what it must have been like living in a small hunter-gatherer tribe, um, maybe like the concept of even having, you know, a Ballast didn't exist at that point and you know the the children of the community were everyone's um, which again would have this, this idea of self being distributed across maybe 100 people or so instead of just one person. And so it does seem to be something that changes over time. And I think given our current state, privacy seems extremely important to, to experiment. Um, but but I sometimes wonder you know, are, are we going to head back to that that extremely open? Is that just too uh, that, that open society? Is that too idealistic? Right. Is that too utopian in mind? <laughs> um, maybe it was awful, but, but I think it, <laughs> I don't know. That's well, something that I, yeah, I think about quite a bit. What
0: strikes me about what you're saying, Max, is that like kind of regardless of what a society's current configuration or current beliefs on privacy are, which, as we're all saying, are bound to change, right? We don't really know what the U.S. 50 years from now, how people will think about these issues. Yeah. One thing that is constant, however, is this idea of persistent identity. Maybe we can pivot to that topic because it's really this concept that in a digital world, more so than ever before, we're leaving these breadcrumbs. We're leaving this incredibly robust data set behind. All of our online interactions, the accounts we make, the, the photos we post, the emails we send, they have the potential to be persistent in a way that wasn't possible before. Maybe in the past if some, you know, August individual passed away and eventually their family agreed to release their letters or their journals. That's kind of an interesting, almost statute of limitations, where they're like, okay, now now we feel comfortable revealing this very intimate private information. But that's pretty limited. Now it's everywhere and and it could potentially be public. So would love to talk to uh, you, Adi, about what the rise of persistent identity means. And and maybe in your experience in the legal community, maybe this is an older concept that was just as relevant before, but... I'm wondering, how, how do you feel about this concept of persistent identity in the digital age and the technologies that might p- potentially be able to help us uh, protect our data history?
2: Yeah, so this is, this is I think, the one of the more interesting kind of developments within the technological space where a lot of time and effort and money is being put into how to create persistent identities or rather how, well, in, in a lot of cases, how to create persistent identities without... Users or people just surfing the internet without them even knowing. Hmm. So some of the some of the stuff that I uh, worked on at EFF and uh, afterward, actually, when I was uh, a lowly intern at the at the Federal Trade Commission, was things like online fingerprinting technologies, which is basically the idea that. So I I, I guess kind of starting from first principle, first ish principles. When you're online and you're logged in um, to a website, the ability to go back to that website and to remain logged in is usually because uh, the website sets a cookie, which is just a little file that says you are you. As the sort of advertising model online and the tracking model online has developed, the ability to set cookies is diminish slightly because first of all, you can only set a cookie on one browser and people are using a browser on their desktop and various apps on their phone. And they're kind of constantly switching back between these two. So what companies have tried to do is to create technologies or to utilize other information that you're giving websites in order to make sure that the person that they think you are is the same person kind of Hmm. across websites, or if you go from shopping for shoes to looking up, I don't know, whatever else. You know, there's a serious sort of business case for trying to establish persistent identities. And the flip side of that coin is that a lot of people don't want those, don't want to be tracked online, don't want to see an advertisement for something that they were browsing uh, you know for the for the medicines that they were browsing for uh, the the you know in the other tab appear on Facebook. they don't want companies to be collecting these profiles about them and sharing this information with each other. Some of the sort of biggest sort of hidden entities in this ecosystem are called data brokers, which are these third parties that all they basically do is collect this vast information about people's Browsing habits, people's um, spending habits. You know, every time you go to a CVS or a, a grocery store and you type in your loyalty card information to get whatever discount you may or may not get, that's information that's going to these data brokers so they know exactly what stuff you want to buy, what sort of stuff they should um, advertise to you, or what sort of bucket they should put you in. And then they sell that information to. Um, various companies so that they can target ads better um, or target their products better. And, you know, we can debate the sort of merits of that ecosystem. But what ends up happening is that there are so many ways of tracking individuals and pegging a particular individual as a particular individual online. So you may be hopping from website to website or from device to device, but these these sites and these trackers know that you are you kind of constantly and consistently. That has a lot of implications for a variety of reasons, one is that that information first of all, can be abused by the government. Um, some of the sort of revelations that came out in the Snowden documents was that the government was using these kind of persistent trackers to identify individuals and to track them across the web. Things like the Google Pref cookie, which is the basic Google advertising cookie that everybody has on their browsers. They're using the fact that everybody has this brow or has this cookie, so everybody has this, you know, string of numbers and letters associated with them not only is google using that to figure out who's who but other companies and other governments were using that to figure out who's who online the other sort of you know apart from government surveillance there's also sort of corporate corporations sort of taking advantage of this information we see a lot of examples of people being put into buckets based on their browsing history based on collecting uh, information that's collected about the type of computer that they're using you know people using Macs are historically and probably currently more well-off than people using PCs, and you have a history of companies collecting this information, creating profiles about individuals so that the PC user who is going on particular websites, who is using certain email addresses, who is shopping at places like Walmart or whatever, can be put in a bucket so that they are likely more cash-strapped and are likely older and more, built, more easily taken advantage of so people can target payday loans at them or target kind of riskier financial ads to them. Right, mm-hmm. uh, And these are the sorts of worries or issues that come up when data, more and more data is being collected and tied to persistent identities online. So what we've seen is companies and individuals kind of creating tools to help people fight back against this. EFF, where I used to work, has a tool called Privacy Badger, which is a basically a tracker blocker that you can install on Chrome or Firefox that blocks these third-party trackers from collecting information about you and is a sort of step in the direction of not having a persistent identity online mm-hmm. in order to fight against this sort of massive data collection. And we'll see how this kind of shakes out over time.
0: Well, yeah, this might be a great time to introduce the concept of Self-sovereign identity from a decentralized perspective, because there is a lot of money and a lot of hype, frankly, behind different applications that are trying to use distributed ledger technologies, blockchain of some sort, to create a decentralized attestation system for maintaining persistent digital identities. They often use this term self-sovereign identity, which is to say you own entirely the information about you. It would be interesting to kind of go into a little bit of detail on what these technologies can and can't actually accomplish, and then just get your perspective, Adi, having been in the space for a long time, whether you think there's really any promise here, or if it's all just kind of hot air. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) So I think, you know, some of the examples that are out there uh people that are developing these kinds of technologies like uport for example the idea is that you'd have a digital fingerprint almost like a public key private key pair that you'd have in bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency where different entities maybe the government but maybe a social media platform maybe a friend maybe a company that you work for can attest to different characteristics of your identity so rather than just having a driver's license that says your eye color, whether you're an organ donor, your height, etc., all information that the government has to maintain centrally, you could have it open where you could kind of be collecting attestations in this basket. And then say you go to a bar and you want to prove that you're 21, your phone can just communicate with the Uport app or whatever software, I don't want to promote any one particular company, but your phone can communicate with the bouncer's app and it can say, oh yeah, this person's over 21. They don't have to know anything about your, I mean, this is kind of benign stuff, right? I don't really care if someone knows my eye color and my height and weight. But it's just a sort of illustrative example of, I would have complete control over which information is passed on to this other entity. Another example would be um, what's happened in Estonia, which is a country that's really gone off the deep end, trying to make their country fully digital. And what they've done is they've said, let's continue to store sensitive information about people like medical history or income, taxes, etc., Let's continue to store that in safe, centrally managed databases. But let's put this, this layer, they call it like a protective data dust layer or something, was the imagery they used. Let's create this system that can monitor when any sort of modifications are made to the data and when the data is accessed. So it's kind of like a, a, a history of timestamps, and that's stored in something quite akin to a blockchain. So there's a bunch of distributed nodes that all have a copy of the same history of how the data is being accessed and moved around. Some of those nodes are controlled by the government, so that doesn't really solve the decentralization uh, issue. But some of those nodes are controlled by, I think, independent companies or other organizations. And one of the nodes, interestingly enough, is actually the Financial Times of Estonia. (laughs) It's their newspaper. (laughs) Basically, every day, the newspaper prints in ink some sort of hash of some element of the data in the blockchain that's maintaining this record of how the data is moving around. So it would be hard for an attacker to change that data they would have to go into everyone's home and find their old newspapers and actually take a sharpie and change those numbers.
2: Wait, and they and they just print out the what? <laughs> well,
0: yeah, it's a little bit. Adi, it's a little bit like um, when Satoshi Nakamoto first released the white paper, or, or maybe it was when, Sorry, it was when it was when Bitcoin first kicked off. They encoded in the header of the first block, kind of the nascent, earliest block of Bitcoin, the headline of the day, which was some. 2008 financial crash, like something in the London Times, right? Mm -hmm. And they did that to kind of just prove that, okay, nobody could have created this any earlier. Like I'm proving fundamentally that I had to have started the Bitcoin blockchain at this point in time, because if it had been any earlier, this newspaper headline wouldn't have existed. And Mm -hmm. And that's using the power of decentralization to attest to something. It's almost the opposite of privacy. It's like if everyone knows something and they all know the same thing, you can't lie. You can't change that. Right. And so I think what the Financial Times is doing is they're using hash functions to obfuscate the actual data. They're not Estonia is not putting all of the data just freely accessible on this open ledger that anyone can copy. Because why would you do that? That sounds like a recipe for disaster. But they are using a hash function to transform elements of that data into unintelligible series of numbers and letters. Really, it's just a number, right? But it's encoded in a certain way, and then they're printing that in the newspaper. So it's a pretty creative, interesting solution.
2: Is is the idea that if I have my health information, well, yeah, I I, I guess, can, can you walk me through sort of like what the use case is for this?
0: Yeah. I mean, frankly, I have some trouble with it myself because I think what the use case is, is like, say I have a dentist and they've got all my dental records and now I'm going to switch to another dentist yeah, and I want to make sure that my, I mean, let's use medical records actually, because dental records, nobody really cares, right? But medical <laughs> records, let's say I have some sensitive illness, right? Or I have some condition I don't want my employers or anyone to know about and that information is stored in my doctor's office and digitally not not in hard copy and it's you know heavily encrypted so it'd be hard for someone to hack into that now i'm switching doctors and i want that data to get moved to my new doctor but i don't want anyone to intercept that data and i don't want anyone else to access that data so in estonia's blockchain there will be a record i believe and we really should have someone from estonia on to (laughs) to enlighten that. definitely but i believe there will be a record on the blockchain in other words a record that's Instantly echoed out to all the nodes, so everyone knows. Okay, someone's data was just moved from this database to this other database, or rather, maybe it stays in the same database, but this new doctor now has authorization to access that piece of data. If the government looked at the data, or your employer looked at the data, or anything like that, any action, any change in the database is viewable on this this blockchain, this ledger of all the basically a change log.
2: Right, and I I, I get the idea of the change log, but it but is Mere viewing of the data logged as well. I'm not sure. That's a good point. Like, I'm am curious if I just want to look at the and someone else's records. I don't know. I I feel like that that's where the the sort of possibility of exploitation or or concern can come up. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm I'm a malicious actor, I don't want to change people's health information. I want to collect it and exploit it. Yeah. Anyway, I I'm I'm curious to to learn more. I'm I'm excited for the next podcast. Episode <laughs> with <laughs>
0: well, here's an example of a use case that Max and I were talking about recently. Let's just maybe talk broadly about what are examples where decentralized storage of data or some sort of decentralized management of data would be would be better than centralized storage, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: Max, you want to walk question. through that? Like, we were, I think we were talking about basically, you know, wh- how would you prevent a government and why would you want to prevent a government or some corporation from being able to actually manipulate data about you? And what are some ways you can Prevent them from doing that using a decentralized system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, at at a high level, I mean, the the Estonia example is really fascinating, but but even some more basic examples, you know, I think to your point, you can sort of separate this into corporate um, and maybe government-controlled data. But today, if you want to use any centralized platform—Facebook, Twitter, Yelp, whatever—you have to create an account with them. They, in theory, own your data and in the future one of the big you know promises we hear of blockchain is hey you know we can create a decentralized Twitter or you know a decentralized set of all these applications where you have one identity maybe different you know many different identities that you can choose to use to log in and track you know your persistent history across Twitter, Facebook whatever you're using um, but that you own complete you have complete control of that data if you want to pull it away at any point you can Um, and in theory because it's you know on a blockchain
0: it's censorship resistance which means no one can can take that away from you but Max just a quick point on that so you were saying at any point you can take the data away that's really hard you know as Adi was talking about in the copyright conversation earlier it's like once if that data exists anywhere someone can just make yeah. a copy of it so the important point here is that your solution that you're describing maybe the data is stored on some sort of blockchain so everyone has a copy of the data but of course that data has to be cryptographically Storage. secured
1: yeah, sorry I, I should have been clear there and, and what I was what I was trying to say is that uh, you can withdraw your identity for future data collection oh, I um, not not past data collection although you're absolutely right I mean you, you could you could certainly use encryption to protect the past bit but that you know in some level is is not too different than what we have today um so, so I guess my question to you Adi, is you know do you think this promise of the blockchain giving people the ability to control their data is that going to have a meaningful impact is that really going to change the way we interact with each other on things like social networks and maybe even at a government level or or you know, do you do you see this the same sort of vulnerabilities um, still popping up even in that system? Yeah.
2: So I, I, I guess um, and you know I will admit that I am not a I'm not a blockchain expert <laughs> by, by any means. Although I, I I've tried to keep up a little bit with sort of the 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 debate around this. And what I would say is, it seems to me that there are a few. of clear value adds of this technology and the value adds are are, come about when a few sort of um, conditions are met one is that we don't trust central players or central parties we don't trust the sort of intermediaries involved and I think this you know gets to the uh, example that you're bringing up where we have sort of a few players right now Amazon Google etc they are kind of controlling these entire ecosystems and maybe there's a sort of political value add to not having a central party involved or having information distributed I don't really know how that totally works in the Estonia situation I'm curious about this like what to what extent the government is involved with maintaining and executing this sort of sort of system and and how it's distributed I remember reading in a recent Wired Interview with the Estonian president Um, they were asking her how how? People can how basically Estonia has created trust um, around their system uh, Their digital system and the way she responded was really kind of interesting and, and I think telling Where she said the way we have created our trust is because our people are not anonymous on the internet and you know, I, th- I think that maybe, I, once again, I don't understand the system fully, but I think that maybe gets to the heart of the sort of issue here, the system here, where these systems work really well if you sacrifice certain other things that may be important like anonymity or like, I don't know, a- a- efficiency in transactions. Yeah,
0: certainly it becomes more inefficient and expensive as soon as you try to do something in a decentralized way. And that's an important point for you know would be blockchain panacea type people which is that right. most of the time you can do this a lot more cheaply and efficiently with a centralized yeah. solution but there are as you're saying instances where it where there's advantages to decentralization
2: yeah and 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 so so basically i, I think what i where i'd come down is i am totally sympathetic to the idea that you can't trust certain central parties and that i i can't think of of much right now but where um, central players like malicious governments or potentially malicious governments should not have, you know, the keys to the kingdom necessarily. You also, you know, there, there, there are some sort of, there seem to be some sort of market benefits to having decentralized solutions, like, uh, I think you mentioned sort of like this anti-censorship um, ability of uh, the decentralized uh, ledger or stopping uh, front running. From what I understand, all the transactions sort of operate at the same rate, so no one can sort of corner the market in that sense. Th- those seem to be really interesting solutions, or really interesting advantages of um, this sort of system. Now, I I don't know how, you know, from, from it, b- being in the privacy space, uh, it's very, you know, there's a huge overlap with people in the security community, and it's really interesting kind of hearing a lot of people in the security community being a little skeptical of uh, decentralized technologies, um, especially when people try to apply it to things like voting or uh, sort of like really kind of important governmental functions. Right. Because it, you know, even in current technologies, it's really hard to make sure every instance running a particular system is secure. and. I am loosely following blockchain news but it's totally, you know, fascinating seeing the number of markets or even like new coin technologies that have basic flaws built into them or serious security breaches or certain certain hacks that have really kind of brought systems down and it's like you mentioned the sort of efficiencies that come out of centralized systems you just have to patch one system, right? Like that that makes <laughs> it a, a lot easier. Yeah. So so it's interesting kind of working through the trade-offs and seeing how, where, where this sort of technology should be applied and if it applies sort of panacea or, or, or if it provides this sort of panacea to um, uh, certain tough problems. As of now, I'm not totally sure – where it would or uh, or what sort of situations where um, a decentralized ledger really provides that much more of a value add to a more centralized yet extremely sort of secure system. And you know, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on 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 where where this technology seems to come out. but it 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 seems like the key aspects of um, Bitcoin technology, things like, or, sorry, blockchain technology, things like uh, anonymity or irreversibility or the lack of need of of sort of trusted third parties, um, there are serious pros and cons to those. You know, there, there are certain systems, certain like financial systems, for example, where you do maybe want a trusted third party if a financial transaction goes wrong or if someone hacks into your system, you know that... There's a trusted third party who can say, oh, "Okay, we won't. We'll discount all these sort of um, new transactions." Um, you know, there there is a sort of world where the network created by Visa or whatever is something that uh, is a little more is much more needed than something that uh, is created by decentralized technology. However, you do end up getting all these sort of concerns with such systems where you have. Um, a, a sort of centralized system that knows what transactions are being taken place, who's associated with transactions, and with the ability to sort of block certain transactions that they don't agree with so that's a long way of saying i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love it
1: yeah no it's 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 real, no one knows <laughs> I'm so well so
2: curious uh, i'm I'm just a little skeptical. Of, you know, throw blockchain at yeah. it. As well you should and be. And all will be solved. But I totally understand the sort of sentiment that we can't trust these third party intermediaries or these centralized yeah. systems. It's just, what is the cost of that and what as a society do we want? Are we are we okay with certain costs existing?
1: Yeah. And Adi, to yeah. your point, Eli and I have talked a ton about this. I mean, I think, you know, Eli, we should do another episode where we just go through potential examples where either censorship resistance or lack of a, a trusted third party um, really makes a big difference. I think the biggest one, and obviously like where Bitcoin started is with currency. And, and again, you know, it's, I think, helpful to think beyond just the United States, but you look at again in a place, which I'm sure we'll have another episode on this as well, but like Venezuela, where obviously the, the people aren't trusting one centralized entity to issue and control their currency supply. And I think in general, any any situation, you know, like creating money, and I'm sure there's many others we can discuss. Where, with when one party has full power, it's like having the ring in Lord of the Rings. You know, there's there's always the danger <laughs> right. that hey, it's it's just too much power for any any person or any small group to hold. I think thinking through those those cases where what are the ring, you know, the ring cases where you do want that censorship resistance.
0: Yeah, that's why they made nine rings for men and seven for elves or whatever. It's like having other nodes that can exactly. monitor the can kind of put a balance on
2: power. <laughs> Dude, water. and that turned out great.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, Max, So I, I agree that that's like kind of the prime example. But another example is just with like data integrity. Like look at the efforts of like the Trump administration to wipe certain yeah, climate that's data. that's great. That's right? a great example. And that's an example where the persistence of data is actually, that's pretty easy to get around. All you need to do is make a copy of it. And that's what people did. People working at the EPA or, or uh, NOAA or wherever it was, just made copies on some flash drives and took it home. (laughs) So that's pretty easy. Where that gets more difficult is with data that is held by the government that is sensitive. Adi mentioned like the government in Alabama attempting to get member roles of certain uh, advocacy groups. If the government holds information that's sensitive, we aren't going to necessarily have copies of it because we wouldn't want that, right? We're kind of trusting the government to have a copy. And so I think that's where Estonia's system or other systems could allow you to sort of cryptographically obfuscate the data. Almost like when you download a piece of software, you can verify the hash of that binary to what's shown on the website. So you can make sure that there's no man in the middle attack going on where it's like, I'm trying to download the Audacity file, but I'm actually getting some virus, right? Those are there's sort of means we have in the cryptography world to verify the validity of data. That's where I think a decentralized system could play a role in terms of protecting the the data that we hold dearest without keeping it in plain text, like like they did with the climate data. And also, Adi, I mean, your point
1: earlier about, you know, a lot of these rights for minority groups that could get uh, abused. I'm just thinking of an example. Let's say you had a centralized record, and in the future, everything was built on smart contracts. Everything was computerized, whether you could get into, you know, a store, whether you could access a certain highway, and someone was able to go in, manipulate the data and say, okay, this person now no longer meets the conditions. Maybe they change your work history. Maybe they change your religious affiliation or whatever. I mean, obviously if that happens, there's deeper problems uh, with, with who's making those decisions in the first place. But it seems like it seems like in the future, if, if there's one centralized entity controlling databases and everything is based on conditional contracts, that also sets up a lot of really scary situations for a small group of people to easily manipulate what you can and can't do in society.
2: Yeah. Yeah. and we don't want that that sounds scary right that sounds (laughs) terrible yeah 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 I'm
1: just texting my grandma we're going to Alcatraz nice yeah it should be very touristy very fun the last thing I wanted to ask Audie and this has been a fascinating conversation we really appreciate all of your your background um, on privacy freedom of speech digital identity where do you see the world headed it's sort of a, a nebulous question, but you know we stand at a crossroads where things could go very sort of utopian, decentralized uh, ability for people to to own their own identity. We could also see this turn nineteen eighty four very very quickly. What are you, the scenarios you see over the next you know ten years, fifty years, yeah, even a hundred years out?
2: I, I try to stay optimistic about the future because I can't imagine living otherwise. I think what I'm most heartened by and excited about is the fact that people are recognizing that these sorts of issues are really important. Privacy issues are really important. Questions about data governance and ownership are really important. Questions about surveillance and the extent of government and corporate power are really important and they all affect day-to-day life. They all affect kind of future life. You know, more and more politicians are getting involved with, uh, with these issues for better or for worse, but generally for better, more and more policymakers and people kind of with power, uh, judges, lawyers, so on, are getting more uh, accustomed to and knowledgeable about these issues more and more Advocacy groups and lobbying groups and educational groups are forming around these issues to educate people about the extent of what does it mean for something to be secure online? What does it mean? What does privacy mean online? What does, you know, what are these speech issues online? People are just getting smarter and more aware about these issues. I also think people are more aware that misplaced trust can have devastating consequences. I think people see this in issues like the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal where misplaced trust in a large entity like Facebook or misplaced trust on Facebook's end in its developers without coming up with kind of more proper, secure uh, ways of transferring data or um, sharing information, that can lead to huge, huge consequences, huge data breaches, huge political issues. That is something that people are now concerned about. People see that you know you can't necessarily trust the government to be doing things rightly or properly because four years from now, you might elect a nutcase to be in charge of the, ju- uh, of the government. And those are the sorts of, I mean, this is the sort of issue that the civil libertarian community has um, expounded on forever is that you need to have checks in place for the government because you can't trust seemingly benign or positive actors in the government from being positive always. Once again, we have a long history of the government making really bad judgment calls on what is a positive versus a negative social disruption? What is a positive civil rights issue versus a negative disruption in society? And um, you don't know who's going to be in charge next. So um, I think people are becoming more and more aware with the latest election, with the latest big data breaches, that too much power in these sort of centralized um, systems, whether it's the government or whether it's these sort of like handful of companies that now control everything on the internet can be a really bad thing and I'm excited that people are trying to figure out what solutions come about. I think the future holds a lot more sort of decentralized solutions. Um, I think the future holds a lot more sort of mistrust of, of too much power and those are really exciting things to me as a sort of um, person who is a little skeptical of too much government power or too much mm-hmm. corporate power. I'm eager to see where the future holds. It just, you know, it takes folks like us to keep beating the drums on these on these issues and keep kind of uh, warning the people in power that change needs to be made.
0: Well, Adi, that's really great to hear. And I think the kind of work you're doing with organizations like EFF and where you're headed next, I mean, is, is super important because I think in addition to a loss of trust in governments and other kind of centralized authorities, people are also realizing there's a loss, they're, they're realizing they shouldn't trust technology too much. Like, what you've just done is you've really effectively diagnosed the problem. You've indicated, you know, there's, there's too much consolidation of power, and the question is, well, what do we do with that? What, what's the solution to, to fix that problem? One way is to entrust it entirely in technology. You know, better cryptography, better, uh, more secure databases, just like make it airtight. But the reality that we're seeing is that no matter how airtight you make something, no no, no matter how foolproof your technological solution is, simple human error, like John Podesta responding to a phishing scam and revealing all of his emails, right? These are the things that actually get people caught. And so on the one side of the coin is how technology can be made more airtight, more bulletproof to protect privacy. On the other end is the legal system, laws. And so we can also just create laws that, create huge disincentives to behaving in certain ways. And so we say, look, we're not going to trust any developers at some company to make the the perfect encryption algorithm. I mean, they should do that, but we're also going to put in place extremely strict punishments, really strong disincentives so that people don't uh, misuse data. And that's kind of where I think we're only just beginning. So I'm really excited to see the work that you and others can do in that space to kind of force us as a society to grapple with these big questions about how much anonymity is too much anonymity. And these are things we're going to have to decide. They're subjective. They're not objective. We can't just leave them up to developers and technologists. We have to actually make decisions as as a society, which is pretty frightening, but also really exciting. Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. And I also echo all of that and and particularly agree with, I think your point is especially spot on that um, as, you know, People have more and more leverage, particularly developers, particularly technologists. Obviously, it's it's very important what they do, but it's even more important, I think, that we keep you know the majority of society engaged in these conversations and figure out w- what can someone do. Like if I if I actually you know care about these issues, what steps can I take? And maybe that's one area we can you know just sort of finish on is Adi, if you have any recommendations, Eli, maybe you have some as well. You guys want to add in terms of what can what can a listener do if they're interested in this this issue? Should they go, you know, uh, download Signal, uh, an encrypted messaging app? Should they go into uh, EFF, EFF's website, you know, and, and download the extension you mentioned, Adi? What are some of the first steps someone should take?
2: Yeah, so I, I basically what I would say is for people interested in privacy and security, becoming more private, becoming more secure, you don't need to, you know, move into a cave, right? Like there are various steps you can take. Um, The the first step of any sort of security training is something called threat modeling, which is basically you, I I mean, it sounds more, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, intense than it actually is. But basically what it is, is you kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, what am I actually worried about? And what sort of forces out there can affect me? Me, as a former student who's like going into the workplace, I'm not that worried about foreign state entities hacking my computer right like but there are people out there who really should be worried about that well allegedly almost every home router
0: now has russian malware on it so <laughs> well
2: yeah, yeah i guess we should all be worried about that um i'll take my tinfoil hat off one thing i would suggest is and i, I keep plugging eff because uh you know that's part of my uh, severance <laughs> tactic is if you just just search for EFF surveillance self-defense, they have this great guide. I believe it's ssd.eff.org. And it'll help you sort of walk through the basic steps of what sort of information do I need to have secured? What sort of software should I be installing? Should I be using things like Signal? Should I be using things like Privacy Badger? I mean, I think everybody should install Privacy Badger Hmm. on their... uh, on their browser should I be taking more uh, advanced steps to secure my email and so on you know I think that's a good first step that everybody should take that's great Adi thank you so much this
0: has been absolutely amazing
2: thanks thanks for doing this enjoy Alcatraz well thank you so much
0: Adi for joining us and if any of our listeners have any questions for for us for Adi feedback you can reach us at cryptonomads at pm.me so once again Adi thank you so much for your time we're signing off thanks a lot thanks a so